0: An Honorable Profession is brought to you by OpenCounter.com. OpenCounter builds tools for local governments to deliver permits and licenses online. Their portals make complex permitting simple, which lowers transaction costs, increases transparency, and empowers economic development. Check out OpenCounter.com to see what they can do for your community. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz, and now on the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors check out some of our past episodes with guests like Washington State Lieutenant Governor Cyrus Habib, Emily Kane of Emily's List, Stephen Reed, the first African-American mayor of Montgomery, Alabama, and dozens of amazing leaders at the state and local level. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends. We're trying to bring sanity to politics in an insane era. We need all the help we can get. Today I'm talking with Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller. I thought it'd be important to hear what it's like running a major US city in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak. Tim's a fascinating guy. He's a native of Albuquerque. He left for college, business school at Harvard, and working in Cambodia with landmine victims before returning home to serve in the state legislature and a state auditor. He was elected mayor of Albuquerque in 2017 and has worked tirelessly on economic development, public safety, and innovation. And now his leadership is being tested by the coronavirus pandemic. Tim Keller, mayor of Albuquerque, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It's great to talk to you today.
1: You too. Glad to be here.
0: So, can you give us a sense of uh, a little bit, first of all, how your community is doing? And, and also, you know, what's it like to be mayor of a major U.S. city uh, as we experience a global pandemic?
1: Sure. You know, I think from our perspective, first off, Albuquerque is doing, I think, pretty good, all things considered. And so we're the largest metro area in about a thousand square miles. So think of kind of between Austin and Phoenix and Denver and El Paso. And what that means is we do have the region's big airport. We have all the major hospitals, major shopping malls and things like that. So it has been, you know, incredibly impactful, uh, like almost everywhere. But Albuquerque is certainly no different. But I do think we got a little bit ahead of the curve with our stay home orders and also dealing with our six thousand employees and sort of how you manage through collective bargaining agreements in a time of emergency and things like that. So I feel like we're actually in a pretty good place. It is odd, though, because for those folks who've been to Albuquerque, you know we have this beautiful outdoors and recreation world, and you know now it's it's like a great tease. You look out your window and it's beautiful and sunny and you're not really supposed to go outside. So uh, I think we're all, you know, there's a dash of cabin fever and stir craziness for all of us, for sure.
0: Yeah, we, uh, I, you know, I'm at the county level of government here in Santa Cruz, and we had to shut down surfing uh, last week because of spring break. And that was um, not well received. <laughs>
1: That is a yeah that I, that takes some real courage. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, cause uh, yeah, we the, the the weird thing is you know waves were breaking so people were sitting shoulder to shoulder uh, waiting for the, the few takeoff spots. Anyway, it was uh, it's you know one of the things you never think about um, and then it happens. Can you talk a little bit about you know it's uh, I think one of the things Americans are discovering is um, the, how uh, fractured. Uh, the decision-making really is in this country where you have the president going in one direction, governors going in different directions, counties, mayors uh, going in different directions. How is it for you trying to make decisions in the context of, um, of uh, all these decision-makers who aren't always aligned?
1: You know, that is one, I think, amazing thing about America that a lot of times You know, I used to live abroad and I I worked with the UN for a long time and I would, you know, have all these discussions with my friends from other countries about like, what is different about America? And, you know, people always point to things that actually aren't necessarily totally different and they forget this fact. What's really different is, and I think it's called pluralism if I remember my political science, but uh, this notion of like different layers of government all across America is really, really bizarre to like the rest of the world. And I think in many ways, uh, cuts both ways for us as a country, right? We see where it can create absolute confusion and disarray when a city or a county disagrees with the state and the country and so forth. And so that's certainly a downside uh, to that setup. But I think we've also seen, and this has played out even in terms of Corona, it also becomes this this sort of innovative competition Uh, in an academic sense, where every locality is trying to do what they think is best. And as a result, the best ideas tend to kind of catch on everywhere else. And I think we saw this here where we had the federal government saying one thing and then they changed to another. We had states saying all different things. And now with minor exception for at least about four weeks, everyone was saying the same thing. And uh, that's a testament, I think, to actually the way this concept can work. But I also know it can be super painful. And what we did to really manage through that is in every decision we made, we said, well, you know, what can we do unilaterally? And then what do we need someone else's, you know, permission or it's a state law or something like that for? And then thirdly, you know, where would be, we be in conflict and how would that work out? And so in, in many ways, I mean, it just made everything really, really complicated. Uh, but it also highlighted, I think, what What matters and what doesn't. So, you know, we had these very thoughtful arguments about whether golf courses should be open or what the occupancy should be at Home Depot. And at least for us, I think in in our part of the world or the country, we aggregated and acquiesced around at least a common set of concepts for social distancing. And that's really helped us. And it's been bipartisan, but we didn't, we couldn't get there right away because everyone kind of had to make their own decision to get there.
0: My first question is, yeah, who do you sort of look to for trying to dis- to make some of these determinations? Uh, you're uh, you're not a public health expert, but you have your community turning to you at this time to make these t- determinations that are also changing on a daily, uh, on an almost a daily basis. How do you how do you start to decide what works at Home Depot, what works in your parks, what's, what's going to happen in your community?
1: We really went through this using a couple of methods. Number one, I did convene the area mayors because like a lot of metropolitan areas, I mean, we have suburbs where there's no discernible boundary between the two communities. So we all agreed that it's important that we kind of move together. So for us, it was more about like having that conversation it was really important locally. Uh, and then it was almost the reverse. Nationally, I've been heavily involved actually with the Conference of Mayors, And also the the Bloomberg Mayors Project, because they have done an amazing job. Every week we have a coordinating call where mayors share what they're dealing with. And we try and acquiesce around, you know, what people think is best. So that's been extremely helpful. And the third piece that we did is we created internally, a we call it a fast team and a slow team. So the fast team was responsible for trying to think through, like, what do we do in the next three days? And so that had, obviously, public health officials and police and fire and things like that. And then the, the slow team is, what do we do beyond three days? And so they're thinking, you know, how do we open emergency shelters? How do we create additional bed space? You know, all of these kinds of things. Creating those two teams was probably one of the best things that I did. And then at the executive level, we check in with the each team every other day. Uh, on alternating days. And so we're able to kind of problem solve both in the short term and long term that way.
0: Are there any decisions that have surprised you either that you had to make or you that you're even contemplating or considering?
1: Well, I think there's a lot about, you know, the daily job of a mayor. And, you know, each city is different. There's sort of a wide variety of mayoral systems, like some mayors sit on council and, Um, And some are part time and that kind of thing. In Albuquerque, we do have separate branches. So it's a separate uh, executive office. But what you do in that role really changed. So, you know, normally, it's like one third ceremonial, you do like a lot of ribbon cuttings, and you read books to kids at school, and you're the figurehead of the community. And that's even in our city charter, uh, that that's part of the mayor's job, it's to be the ceremonial head of the city. Um That completely disappeared, right, and so that's just not part of the job anymore and uh, the other third of the job was to be the the CEO is the term our charter uses of the city. that has now become like eighty percent of my job. So I was totally surprised at how much I had to wade into you know are we making people telework? Are we doing furloughs? Are we withdrawing on our reserves? These were all kind of management decisions that. You know, in some cities might be a city manager or something like that. For us, uh, I've been putting my MBA to hard work for sure <laughs> during this time. And then the last chunk um, was, is also, I think, what people would expect, but that figurehead piece evolves into really being the disseminator of information for a given population. So we've been doing daily press conferences, which actually are very taxing on my team and uh, even just all of us to get ready every single day to go on Facebook, Twitter, and live TV and live radio and give people an update on, you know, whatever is happening. And that's also involved really just letting go of messaging. And you just walk out there every day and you tell people what's going on. And sometimes it makes you look bad. Sometimes it doesn't. And basically, you just hope that people appreciate that you're keeping them updated And so far that seems to have gone over really well in Albuquerque, but it's very different than sort of planning out, you know, a press rollout and thinking through strategy. There's just no time for that. You just walk out there and give them the latest information you got. And how have you found
0: the public's appetite uh, for that information? It's always a tricky balance, right? Between saying, uh, giving people a sense that there's decisions being made and that, uh, we're based, backed up on data with some of the realities of a total lack of testing nationwide, for example, right, uh, that, that will inhibit our ability to, to return to normalcy anytime soon. How are you finding that balance in terms of re, uh, reassuring your community, but at the same time giving them the information they need?
1: In terms of how we're dealing with that kind of managing expectations part There's a couple of pieces we've tried. One is to just straight up tell people that a lot of these decisions are judgment calls. They're not fact-based and they're not data-based. And they also might change in the next few days. And I probably say that line that I just said to you at least every other day in our press conference. So we acknowledge upfront that no one knows exactly how this is all going to play out. And we acknowledge that it's probably going to change. I think that's helped kind of enroll people with us because they have the same uncertainty and, and also put us on a map that is, you know, a couple of days forward as opposed to making, you know, false statements like we've seen happen federally about like Easter and things like this. Uh, Fortunately, we completely avoided that. In fact, we sort of said the opposite, which is that uh, we'll never know uh, more than a few days in advance, probably how this is going to play out. So I think part of that has helped uh, and we see it in interestingly, like our, when I used to do a Facebook live video, I mean, on a good run, we'd get maybe 8,000 viewers. Normally we'd get like 3,000. Uh, now we get about 20,000. And I used to do telephone town halls. We get like 500 people, a thousand people. Now we have 15,000 people on our telephone town halls and we're not doing actually anything different. It's actually just people care. And they're also maybe not busy, you know, they're not working. <laughs> right. so so, I do run into a lot of people who are like, oh, yeah, I watch your press conference because I have nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> Cheap entertainment. Um, actually, one line on this uh, we got complaints after our first one. Uh, people were upset that, that the local TV was cutting into prices right and they were missing the showcase showdown. <laughs> so, um, we knew we were important when that happened. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can't stand between you and the showcase showdown. Uh, so,. Longer term, I mean, I think one of the things that we're all starting to reckon with is there's the short term health crisis and immediate economic fallout. There's going to be a long term economic fallout for our citizens, for our businesses, and then for our own city and county budgets. Uh, what are you looking at for your long term in terms of how your how Albuquerque will deal with this, um, you know, over the next year, two years?
1: You know, the long-term challenge, I think, is going to be very real. And, you know, there's all sorts of challenges with respect to, you know, it's like when it comes to life and death, obviously the virus is what matters the most. But, you know, you do have to think about what our economy looks like a year from now. And if you have 10,000 more people on, you know, social assistance programs uh, and filling up your homeless shelters and so forth, that's very real. So, there is a a public health connection actually to the economic development challenges too. And so we're very worried about that. I think what we've done in the short term, we tried to really just do some triage for businesses. So we gave $5,000 grants directly to businesses, not loans, just straight up money. They can use it for whatever they want. That program, we offered 100 grants and uh, that program was 10 times oversubscribed within three days. That's how high the demand was for it. So um, you know we had 1,400 applicants to that that program, and it just showed us how desperate people are right now. So we've tried to do a couple of other things. We've tried to accelerate construction because that is an essential job, and it's one that you know if the construction's done, then hopefully it means more activity uh, for the you know buildings, et cetera, that that they're building so we pushed forward about 70 million of construction projects that were slated throughout 2020 and we pushed them all forward into the the spring so we're trying to help especially like working families who need that paycheck uh through accelerated construction but also continue to send a signal that like our city's growing and we're going to So that those
0: those were city uh construction projects?
1: Or? Yes, yeah, okay. they're all yeah. from our general obligation bonds and, um, our economic development bonds. Gotcha. So, and then we've tried to help in Albuquerque, the creative economy is a big part of who we are. So it's one of our largest sectors and it's, um, you know, whether it's artists or musicians or theaters. And so we actually moved like a million dollars that would have been to pay them to perform at city events and things like this. Uh, and now they're doing it online or they're doing it uh, for children through digital learning. So we also converted a lot of our creative economy work to something that they could still get paid for and still benefit the community. And so those are some of the kind of economic development programs that we've worked on in the short term. And I think in the long term, we'll see how this plays out. But my plan now is to just max out on bonding, because if we think there's at least stability going forward, Uh, Interest rates are super low. We are literally making millions by refinancing all our bonding projects right now. And we might do a huge round that would free up like 100 million plus in uh, quality of life improvements. So we're going to kind of have a a flavor of the New Deal (laughs) in some ways, uh, harkening back to public works jobs.
0: Wow. That's really really interesting. And so... um... Do you think you're going to be able to uh, involve the creative community uh, that is that is so key to Albuquerque in these public projects? Have you, have you thought about how to how to sort of shore up that part of your um, and vulnerable uh, population in these public projects?
1: We've looked at integrating them in a couple of ways we're some of the larger projects we're considering is like a performing arts center. So that obviously has a direct connection. But if we look at what we're doing at our old rail yards, like a lot of cities have these, you know, empty industrial districts and things like that. We're basically doing all the uh, environmental remediation and the maintenance to make those spaces leasable for maker space, uh, which is in high demand right now in our city. And so, even for film production. So our local film school from central New Mexico, we're hoping to get them to move in there. So we're creating, we're using placemaking to create uh, that connection between the creative economy and the public. That's probably the biggest way that we're trying to connect those two. Uh, The only other aspect of that that I'd mention is that we do have a lot of festivals. They're not like nationally recognized, you know, like a South by Southwest other than the balloon fiesta, which is huge. But locally and regionally, our festivals are a big deal. There's one like every couple of weeks. And that is one where unrelated to bonding, but we're trying to find ways to make sure that we have the money to pull that off. And uh, that might even include private fundraising where we get, you know, corporate sponsorships to keep that going, Uh, again, to keep the creative economy afloat and to try and drive tourism once we uh, open back up.
0: Interesting. We're going to have to look at all new Funding streams, financing mechanisms, it's going to be a, you're, you're right in your observation that it does spur this creativity uh, at local government that thing can be adopted, but it's um, nothing quite like trying to, you know, uh, build the airplane as you're flying it uh, while dealing with a health crisis at the same time. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's an enormous challenge that you're under. I want to talk a little bit about your uh, your path into public service and sort of how you found yourself <laughs> um, interrupting people's prices right games uh, or TV watching. Uh, uh, so you were born and raised in Albuquerque, but you left and had a really interesting career and life uh, working overseas after uh, attending Harvard Business School. Can you talk about the decision? First of all, talk about a little bit about that experience and what, how it's helped you, uh, in your role in public service, but then what made you decide to, to come back and, and run for office?
1: Sure. Um, you know, for me, so there's, I think, you know, the reality is that when I was a little kid, uh, I was like a government dork. So I did used to watch C-SPAN (laughs) Um, and I mean, this is when I was like really young and, you know, I was always into student government and things like this. And actually when I got kind of into college and after that, you know, I got really interested in sort of business as well, but mostly international development. That's kind of what I was really into, uh, in my twenties. And so I spent three years living in Cambodia and I, I started a, actually a website company out there that's still around called Digital Divide Data. And that was a real eye-opening experience for me because I got to kind of satisfy my uh, desire to you know, start a business and do that whole thing. And this was kind of a dot-com era based on my age. So like all my peers were doing this too. I was just doing it in Cambodia, you know. <laughs> so, um, But ironically, three years there made me really kind of have some introspection about like what I'm doing in life and what I think my purpose is in life. And, and just, you know, also what gives me a lot of fulfillment. And I really came back to two things. I came back to the fact that I always loved government and I had really, you know, abandoned that passion uh, for about 10 years. And the other thing was my home. So New Mexico is core to like who I am. And I lived in about 10 different places and uh, 12 or so years all across uh, the globe, actually, London for a while, Moscow for a while. And the more I was gone, the more I longed to be back home in New Mexico. And so this place does have this kind of magical spell that it puts on you. And a lot of New Mexicans experience this, they call it the land of entrapment, because <laughs> you have either never been here and you come here and you like can't leave, or you leave and it just it brings you right back. And it's just a Combination of everything from family to culture to outdoors to food to just one of the most unique places in America. So I really felt this calling to come back, and it was the same desire that I had when I was a kid to get involved in government. So I tried to come back three different times, and I tried to get a government job all three times, and I could never get one. I couldn't get a job as an analyst in the state senate. I couldn't get a job at City hall, couldn't get a job at the county, and you know, I'm just applying through the bureaucracy like everyone else. And you know, I just couldn't get a job. So the long story short is when I went to uh, business school, I decided there that I was going to plan the rest of my life to get back home and get involved in government. So I took that time to basically find a job that would pay off my debt really fast that was also fun and allowed me to live in Albuquerque. so, I commuted to Houston for a couple of years and did have an excellent job that I still use all those skills today and wonderfully paid off my debt. And then uh, I turned around and um, got involved. And my theory was, uh, since I tried to get involved in government kind of through applying and working in government didn't really work, I said, I'm gonna try all three channels. So I got involved in the party. I was a local ward chair. um, And then I volunteered at our state Senate uh, to be a page, mind you, I'm 28 at this point. Um, wow! And that, which you know, is old to be a page. Uh, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then I also decided to join like a lot of neighborhood rights and organizing groups uh, to get involved in my community. And so that actually worked amazingly. In that I started helping on campaigns, and there was this one woman running for state senate, and she had to drop out, and I was helping on her campaign, and. I remember it was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving and we were eating at this Vietnamese restaurant that I always went to. And she said, you know, I can't do this. You've got nothing to do. You have no life. (laughs) I had no family or at the time, no job. And uh, she's like, why don't you run? And I was like, you know, I've always wanted to run for office. So I'd love to. And that's how I got, I ran for my first state Senate gig. Uh, And then from there, I just wanted to go full-time, so I ran for state auditor because I learned about this cool job that was like finance and in government and elected, uh, and so that was an amazing statewide elected office, and uh, mayor was a little different in that our city continues and was facing massive challenges. We, we had skyrocketing crime, the economy was flat, homelessness, and uh, I really felt my hometown was you know going off a cliff slowly. And so I gave up my auditor position to run for mayor, which some people actually thought was a move backwards. Uh, But I just felt like it was what I had been training to do uh, for my entire political journey was to try and help my hometown.
0: And can you, I mean, just because we're in a day and age uh, where you don't hear enough, a lot of people talking about um, how they've always loved government and felt a connection. What is it about government and public service. I mean, you could be doing anything, anywhere. Um, why, why government? What is it? What, how does it speak to you in a way that other fields don't?
1: You know, I think there is something about, which sounds very, you know, kind of corny, but, uh, there is something about like the, to me, the functioning of a city or, uh, wherever we live. And, like, I really rediscovered this in Cambodia when I saw a government that was terrible, that couldn't even pick up the trash. I mean, like, literally, I used to sit there and be like, that's funny. Every American can, town can do this. Why can't Phnom Penh? And um, there is, I think, a notion of, like, also when you have kids, like, you realize, like, our schools are publicly funded. And, you know, there's sort of this, to me, full circle notion that in a, many ways, the mark of a good place to live is a reflection of how effective that government is. And I think in general, for something like America or New Mexico, we do great, you know. But if you compare one city to another, I think the difference is government leadership. And, uh, and that, to me, has been something that I think you can even perceive at a very young age when you visit other cities uh, or you meet people from other places. Uh, and so as an adult, uh, I did feel that kind of calling to make the place I live, you know, a little bit better. And I think still, there is no better way to do that than government. So, you know, for folks I know even in the business sector, who I still talk to last night, I was talking to my HBS classmates. And they're like, well, I really someday want to give back, you know, (laughs) just to my community. And I was like, guys, like government is the highest return on investment. If you want to actually improve a community, nonprofits, certainly important but I don't think anything is more impactful to our everyday lives than government.
0: Did, did they hear you? D- are we going to have uh, a bunch of uh, HBS people uh, running for office around the country? You think?
1: Oh, I tried to hire them actually. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, let me show you. And then, you know, we talked about the difference in salary and they weren't as interested, but um, the, um, I do think there is something about the millennials that, uh, are a little bit more government interested than I think some previous generations. And I don't want to speak for like generations in general, that's just never a good idea. But my wife's a millennial I'm gen X. And I do find that like, you know, my peer group thing was heavily about startups. I mean, that was our generation's Mark. Um, And uh, I do think the millennials are just much more socially conscious. And I think that's also driving interest in government.
0: And so, uh, in terms of uh, going from state auditor, statewide office, back down to the city level, um, has it lived up to your expectations? And can you talk about the difference between being statewide and being uh, at the local level, especially mayor? Mayor's a, a unique uh, unique experience.
1: Sure. You know, being statewide is amazing because you, you obviously get to like travel around the state. So in a state like New Mexico and larger states, it is an amazing license to sort of have it's like road trips gone wild. That was that was the state auditors office because I had to go to every little municipality and county and uh it was awesome and you just really appreciate that broader environment from where you're from. And you know it it certainly has a certain level of prestige because it's a statewide office. Uh but I think you also see how distant you are from people's everyday lives. So, you know, I would really help out a little town here and there, or I'd bust some fraud up, you know, at a state agency. Uh, I'd try and shake loose some capital money that was, you know, mired in government bureaucracy. And I think that helped a lot. But mayor is like the exact opposite. I rarely leave the city, uh, which actually I long for the days when I can just drive around (laughs) rural New Mexico. Um, And uh, you can't escape people. So, you know it everyone says it, but like the grocery store, the parking lot, at stoplights, I mean, people either honk and wave or they honk and flip you off. Uh, <laughs> it's awesome. And so you are just front and center and and your life becomes completely public. Um, and you know, in some ways that there's certainly some downside to that where you can miss your privacy. But I think I've never felt more community involvement ever <laughs> than being mayor, so if that's what you're into, it's definitely the the job for you. It's
0: definitely the ma- at the maximum. So I got to ask, and a final question is: uh, So you're famous for uh, being the mayor who is most into metal? Uh, that that we, that at least will acknowledge it on in public. Um, is, there a, is there a soundtrack that you're listening to to get through this pandemic uh, in order to they that that, uh, that is the release uh, after a long, long day or week?
1: Oh, man, that is such a good question. Um, so, first, there is a Spotify playlist for the Metal Mayor, uh, if, if folks <laughs> want to reference that. Um, and it actually, when they asked me for the playlist, It actually was my playlist, meaning that it's not age appropriate. Like, you know, I mean, it's like actually I was listening to So I have to be really careful, like 18 and over only on that one, please. So um, but uh, yeah, metal actually has been kind of a driving force in my life. It's gotten me through a lot of hard times. I also never grew out of it. I mean, to be fair, you know, I, I like got into it when I was a little kid and I stayed with it. And so, uh, I didn't think anyone would care at all. So I became mayor. And so, uh, all of a sudden when I show up at concerts, people are like, Whoa, the mayor's here. Um, and even the bands have cared, which is, which is like a dream come true for me. So I get to literally meet like Anthrax and, uh, Ozzy, uh, and, you know, introduce them when they go on stage. And, and then i go hop in the pit. So, uh, of course for like 30 seconds, cause I'm too old to hang in there for a long time. So, um, so I've loved it and it has actually been, you know, I think locally, no one really understands it nor what I expect them to, but they do appreciate the authenticity.
0: That is, uh, that is amazing. Uh, it's hard to imagine a uh, big city mayor being in the pit even for, uh, even for a few seconds. So, so, Keep it up.
1: <laughs> thanks. Thanks. There was, was supposed to be a show this week. They're all canceled. So right. You know. Oh, but to your point. So what am I listening to? I mean, I have to go with this because, like, yeah. so interestingly, which I think is a reflection of stress. If I really want to psychoanalyze it, I've been really into um, the band called Testament because they were going to come here, uh, and so I was like doing my concert warm up listening to a bunch of Testament. Uh, but then I've been listening to a bunch of old Metallica, which is one of the first heavy metal like that I liked. So, you know, kind of kill them all era stuff, yep. which is weird. Cause I never really crave old Metallica and I've been listening to a ton <laughs> of it lately. Um, and then oddly, which I think is another weird thing, you know, my era was also grunge, which is debatable if it's metal. Uh, but I've been really into like Alice in Chains lately also, cause I think it's kind of depressing. <laughs> so, uh, so there you go. Old school thrash and, um, you know, metal grunge.
0: If there's a, yeah, I think if, if there's ever an excuse to break out old Metallica, a, a global pandemic has to be it. So, uh, so I, 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 I think, I think we all give you uh, permission to listen to as much, uh, Metallica as you possibly
1: can. In case there's one person who hears this that cares, the third one is clutch, which they have a lot of songs about Armageddon and aliens and stuff. And uh, they're perfect for right now. (laughs) Perfect. Uh,
0: You're going to have to update that Spotify list. uh,
1: uh... Uh, I think Clutch is on there. Okay. All those bands are regular, although it's probably Death Magnetic Metallica, not Old School Metallica.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Um, Well, uh, Tim Keller, thank you for joining us on An Honorable Profession. It's been uh, really great to talk to you, and I wish you... Um, all the best for your family, for your community, uh, as we all try to get through this time.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. Appreciate all the other, uh, public leaders out there doing everything they can, uh, and all that the new deal does to bring us together. So thank you.
0: Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to an honorable profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable boots. Road group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.